inspiring conversations with the most compelling performers, educators, authors, and product manufacturers of our time. This is the show about all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast. Deciding to pursue post-secondary education in music is a daunting task. Not only must students in today's world choose amongst hundreds of possible places to study, but a near infinite number of career paths, some of which don't even exist yet. Of course, this causes significant anxiety for students and parents alike, but now there's a new book to help with the whole process. Today on the program, I'm joined by Annie Bosler, Dr. Don Green, and Kathy Tisar, who are the authors of College Prep for Musicians, a guide for students, parents, teachers, and counselors. I'm your host, Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast at clarinet.com. If you'd like to listen to an extended, ad-free version of today's episode and many others, head to clarinet.com slash subscribe. Don't forget to visit the Clarinet store for links to buy official apparel and special offers, products, and services, some of which are available exclusively to our listeners. And of course, I love to hear from listeners all over the world. If you'd like to get in touch with me or be a guest on the program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button at our website. Again, that's clarinet.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show, and thank you especially to our sponsors for helping make it all possible. clarinetist David Schifrin at the International Clarinet Celebration in beautiful Portland, Oregon, June 24th to 30th. Hosted by Chamber Music Northwest, this event combines a full week of concerts by world-class artists like Corrado Giuffredi and Jose Frank Biester. There's also clarinet masterclasses, lectures, clarinet mentors amateur workshops, ensemble performance opportunities, a clarinet marketplace, and a young artist competition. Passes are on sale now, and you can learn more at cmnw.org. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new Vocalese mouthpiece, Complex Resonance at a Reasonable Price. Get yours at www.bakunmusical.com and save 10% on any accessory purchase with code Clarinet at checkout. Have you wanted to try Diderio reeds but weren't quite sure which to choose? Here's how to decide. Reserve reeds come in a white and blue box. They feature a traditional blank and are perfect for those who want to focus sound with the quickest response possible. Reserve classic reeds come in a white and purple box. They feature a thicker blank that provides an expanded tonal color palette, clarity of articulation, and added flexibility. And the new Reserve Evolution reeds come in a white and yellow box. They feature our thickest blank and have a heavy spine for added projection and exceptional tonal depth, warmth, and flexibility. You'll have to try it to believe it. Try Reserve reeds now at your local music store or head to clarinet.com reeds to buy a box right now. So let's go around a circle and we're going to all, um, if you could all introduce yourselves, that'd be great. You want to go in uh, alphabetical order and start with Annie? Sure. So um, I'm Annie and I'm a freelance French horn player and teacher in Los Angeles, California. Um, and I specialize in high school students. And what I bring to the book is um, basically from the parent teacher side, kind of what the students are looking at and what the parents are looking uh, for when, you know, auditioning for college and looking at colleges for musicians. Hi, my name is Dr. Don Green. I'm a peak performance psychologist. I work with musicians to help them with the stress of 
auditions, like auditioning for music school and doing their best under pressure. Hi, I'm, uh, I go by Kathy. Um, formerly it's Kathleen and I, uh, currently am the associate Dean for enrollment management at the Juilliard school. Prior to that, I was associate Dean in the conservatory at the Colburn school. And way back before that, I was director of admissions at the Eastman school of music. So that kind of makes it obvious that my role in the book was all the information about the application process, the back end, how decisions are made in um, music schools versus regular college. And I put that in quotes, um, but it, I'm contributing information that helps students um, understand the process uh, of applying to colleges as a music student. Yeah, so I have to say one of the things I really loved about the book was um, the fact that you you did delve so deep, not into just, uh, you know, which schools maybe to consider, but the different types of schools. And I'm not sure, sure that's something that enough students really think about. For example, if you're at a university, you have to end up doing some general education courses where if you go to a conservatory, that's not going to be happening as much, right? So how do you think this book will benefit upcoming generations of students as far as finding the, the correct school and the correct sort of field in music for them? It's interesting because I do travel a lot on behalf of uh, the Juilliard School and I talk to students all the time. And uh, the the thing I hear most is that they, they don't have the information. And this becomes critical when there's a student who's very talented and very driven to succeed as a musician but they don't have people around them who can help them with the information. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing if your parents are members of, you know, a professional orchestra and it's another thing if you're, um, you know, kind of on your own with your music and your parents are like, great, we support you, but we have no clue, uh, which is kind of how my parents were. <laughs> and, you know, they, they, the parents are kind of following the student. And so it's like, we can help you guys with some really, basic concrete information, some organizational tools, some techniques for really focusing on the audition and giving your best performance. And, and it's really going to um, help you make the best decision because you're going to have more information than you would have otherwise. Do you feel the role of parents in this whole process has changed over the last several generations or? From where I sit, um, I don't think so necessarily. No, okay. Um, you always have different levels of involvement from parents, um, you know, from stage parents to the complete, you know, if, if you're going to do this, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, which is <laughs> granted very rare, but, um, you know, that's kind of the gamut that, that we face, but I, I don't think it really has changed that much. There are other pieces that have changed, but I don't think that has. So, and I love the way it's laid out for, for high school students, especially as far as where they should be thinking and what they should be thinking about at different stages in their high school career. Um, but from my experience, a lot of high schoolers don't really discover what they want to be doing until their very last year of high school. So what advice would you have for high school students who maybe are a little late to finding what it is they really want to do and, and they've decided on music? Um, I, I would say for that, that it's, I mean, I deal with this all the time, honestly, like I, I, I will get a student that comes to me and they say, you know, I'm, I, I've decided yesterday that I want to major in French horn. And so you're like, okay. And then you think, wait a second, you're, you know, you're, you're in, in September of your high school year and, and so, I mean, your senior year of high school. And so all of a sudden now you're stuck 
um, you know, double checking, does this student have all the fundamentals they need, all those things. And so, um, I mean, it, it does happen quite a lot. And so my my recommendation to to all teachers and students out there is that the, the number one goal is to, um, you know, try to get great fundamentals all through the, the four years that you're, that you're in high school working on your instrument or in middle school as well. And so you're getting great fundamentals. So if at any point you decide to make that transition, already in the process and you have the skill set and so that I find that that is my true goal like as teaching from from freshman year or middle school on is to try to get those great fundamentals but if I have a student that comes to me let's say completely cold we've never met senior year um you know it's it I always will will kind of assess where they are and that's where in the book um we make an emphasis on you know kind of asking yourself uh by by the time you're starting your application process where would you get into school on just your average day Mm -hmm. and so that kind of becomes your the starting point as to which kind of we we call them tiers, tiers of schools that you're looking at. Um, and, and it's based on the percentage of students that, that get in every year into that particular university. And so, um, you know, based on that, you would look at it with your, your private teacher and then, um, you would kind of ask yourself, you know, is this the place where I can kind of see myself in this tier of schools? And hopefully you're going to be practicing a whole ton during your senior year and you'll improve even more. And so hopefully you surpass that point and get into, say, a, a, what what a normal college counselor would call your your reach schools. You'd hopefully get into one of those, a, a higher tier school. Um, and so. Um, that would be the, the goal. And if by chance you don't hit that goal, you can take um, a gap year, which is, is something that some students don't even know is an option. And a gap year for musicians is, is sometimes not a bad idea because it's not a race of, of what age you graduate college, you know, from what age you graduate college, but it's more of a race of how great you can become at your instrument. And, and therefore you're more prepared for the master's degree of the professional world. And so, um, you know, I think we look at it from several perspectives, where your fundamentals, um, what, you know, where can we get your fundamentals and you're playing to, and then on top of that, um, what schools, should you be looking at what schools do you want to look at? And then on the, the last piece is, is do you want to take a gap year? Is that even an option for you? So that that's what I would recommend. So that brings a couple questions for me. Do you think that the, the teacher or the, whether it be the private teacher or the band teacher, do you think that they have um, a little bit more responsibility, especially when the parents are not um, musically inclined to really push kids towards their consideration of music careers earlier rather than allowing them to sort of wait till grade 12? Um, I'll, I'll jump in and answer then if Kathy Donyona jump in as well, that'd be great. Um, my, my recommendation is that the, you know, the band director and the private teacher definitely have a huge role in the student's life. And, and hopefully the student is paired up with, um, you know, at least the private teacher who is, who's a good fit for them, meaning they're encouraging, they look at all the different parts they're playing, they're having them do recitals and solos. Um, but I, I do think that they play a big part in it, but at the same point, I don't think it's, it's their responsibility necessarily to encourage it. I mean, I can tell you from my own experience, I had no idea until really close to my senior year that I really wanted to to major in French horn. And so um, it became a a decision that was, I would say, much later in my career than, than, (laughs) I mean, my high school career than most most people that I see these days, especially in Los Angeles. And so I think it's something that teachers and band directors can always kind of put the seed out there, you know, plant plant that seed. Is this something you want to do? But at the same point, I think it's it's the students sometimes don't don't get to that point until, you know, they're on their own. And it might be something that inspires them, maybe a performance or something they see or, or hear um, live or a performance they hear or see live or something they do themselves that, that flips that switch. But, um, but you know, it's, it's, it's something they have to come to on their own for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I agree with that. And I think uh, it, it takes a village 
Yes. And once a student um, has had that switch flipped, which is exactly what happened to me, you know, I was at summer camp and I was like, oh, my gosh, this this is it. This is it. <laughs> um, you know, so it was like my my um, orchestra director at my school, um, my private teacher, um, you know, because everyone has their own networks. And so. Um, some private teachers have good local networks. Some private teachers have broader networks. Um, some uh, parents might have their own networks. Um, the students, if they like, if you go off to camp again for the summer, you know, and we're talking music camp, we're not talking pottery making. Um, so you're off at um, music camp and, you know, you're meeting kids from from different places who have their networks. So even though they're also high school students, they um, can tell you about places you hadn't thought of, mm -hmm. you know, and so so that that whole network is part of what can help give a student uh, some guidance through this process. Um, and I think everyone's needed in that process, not not just the private teacher, not just the parents, but everyone. It was really interesting to read this book for me because I'm a Canadian and uh, it was evident upon reading how different things are um, in, in the States. And uh, so. But one thing I just realized as you're talking now is you mentioned this idea of a gap year. Is that very common in the States? I, I don't know that it's common, but what is common is when I'm talking to prospective students, they're very worried about how it will look on their resume as if a gap year is a, a bad thing. And my my go-to answer is a gap year is a bad thing if it doesn't make you a better candidate mm. for music school. So if you're taking a gap year and you're saying, I'm going to practice five hours a day during this gap year, and then you spend five minutes a day and the rest of the time, you know, <laughs> uh, online, you know, playing, you know video, playing games, video games, you're not really, um, uh, you know, you know, you haven't done anything to make yourself better and you've probably made yourself worse. Yes. So um, the answer for me as as an admissions officer is always whatever you're doing, it should make you better. Um, if you can't afford summer camp, for example, which not everyone can. Um, fine, then stay home and make sure your practice is really, really solid so that it's making you a better person because it's not about the number of things you've lined up on your resume. It's about what you sound like when you walk into that audition. So should people not be worried then about this whole, um, I mean, a lot of these young artist competitions and, and a lot of jobs, it seems even if you're not in somewhere by when you're 30 or 25, even it can seem like a real detriment. And it seems like a gap year might kind of make that problem worse. And recently on um, Slip Disc this week, actually, there was an article about a flute player who I think she was 32 and was deemed too old to do whatever competition she was trying to do. And they, they had a sensationalist headline like at 32 flute players are expired or something like that. But, you know, I'm 32. I'd hope my career is not over, but I definitely don't know that adding extra time would have been beneficial. You know, working with musicians and athletes, it's, it's really a big difference. Because a lot of musicians I know don't hit their stride until they're in their 30s. Yeah, yeah. And supporting what Annie and Kathy's saying, you know, a year later in that process, no big thing. But I'm used to working with, with athletes that are done when they're 18. Yes, like yeah. Yeah. Figure skater, maybe 21. Um, so to me, that's the beauty of being a musician is you have a long, long career that you can continue getting better. Yeah, probably getting older, but to me, 30 is, is young. Yeah, no, and I've heard too that especially wind players, because they didn't start generally on their instrument when they were three or four, they tend to mature a bit later instead of in their 20s, it's in their 30s. 
And mm-hmm. uh, that's okay. <laughs> we all shouldn't worry about it so much maybe. But um, so, you know, that actually reminds me of something in the book, which I really enjoyed too, because I saw this happen myself when I was a student. Um, but there's a, there's a section in here. It was something like uh, pr- those who are prodigies, if they relax when they're in their degrees, other people will eventually surpass them through hard work. And I remember very specifically, I was not a prodigy. (laughs) I had a good tone and I could play, but I wasn't a prodigy by any means. Um, But there were students, specifically, I remember a flute player when I was in university. She was a total prodigy, but by third year, she was shocked because people were starting to pass her and she was really floundering and had no idea what to do. She'd never learned how to practice properly. And it was really hard for her. But other people who were prodigies had kept practicing and they were even, you know, above everybody else. But so... I guess that was a really interesting concept to read about. And I imagine it would be very um, um, supportive for a high school student student to read about that. Do you have any more thoughts about how that sort of works and and how either type of person, prodigy or not, can make sure they reach their full potential? To be honest, this is a concept I learned from my dad when I was really little um, because uh, I was I was a tennis player. And um, and that was, you know, when I went through college, I played played tennis in college also. And so um, he kept. I was the kid that was not the prodigy on horn or on tennis and we would show up to tennis matches and I was, you know, I would, I honestly, I lost for like eight years straight, never won a match. And then, um, I had a coach one time that finally taught me how to win. And it was this, it was that exact scenario. So it's like everybody else is, you know, if you think about a graph, everybody else that is, is, you know, prodigies, if you want to call them, are just, you know, very naturally talented, are kind of going at their own rate. And then you've got somebody who's just the hardworking kid, um, you know, who puts in the hours and has talent, but but maybe not as natural as some others. And um, and you just keep working, and you keep working, and all of a sudden that graph, those lines start to cross. And then the, the person that's naturally talented, um, you know, but is, is, might be, it's like you're saying, might be floundering a little bit while the person that works hard. So, I mean, I, I just think, you know, the it goes back to, you know, the, the idea of just positive repetitions, positive practice, I think lead to a lot more, um, long-term success than, than someone who's just kind of going off of, of skill, skill set they've got. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've watched it in high school students. I've watched it with colleagues of mine, I'm sure as you have Sean and, and, you know, it's, and then, um, you know, it's, I've watched plenty of my, my friends from, from youth orchestra that are now that got into Curtis and, you know, went on to do great things. But, you know, then there's the students that the other colleagues of your own that, you know, might not have gotten into Curtis and, and they went to a state school and they worked um, even harder and they honestly have bigger jobs now. And so, um, you know, I, I think it, it, it goes both directions where the, the, there are plenty of students in, that went to Curtis that also have big jobs, but there's, you know, it's, it's like that, that line will catch up at some point. Yeah. And I know Don, Don deals with this all the time too. So Don, feel free to jump in. Yeah. I just recall some of my graduate students at Juilliard mm-hmm. who had started San Suzuki at two or three. By the time they reached graduate school, at Juilliard, they were burned out. Yeah. They had peaked, peaked early, and some of them left music. So to me, um, because it's such a long haul, is is I'm concerned with pe- peaking too early and burning out and getting out of music. Yeah. So this sort of argues again for maybe take a year off and a gap year, so you're ready for it when and not peak early. 
Yeah. And, and yeah. I'd like to throw it too. I think there's no hits, no hits on Curtis or Juilliard by any stretch, but it's, it's, I mean, but you find that at any school, you know what I mean? You find that at, at any, any school. And I think that's what Don just said is the biggest thing. And that, that rolls the gap year and the natural talent and the prodigies and the hard workers all into the same boat where it's a marathon. It's a long haul. It's a, it's a, you know, in your career, in your, in your and so, you know, if you're not willing to, to survive your teens and your 20s with all the hours of practice, white wall rooms you have to live in, then I think, you know, uh, particularly in the performance realm, I think that that would be that's where the, the you know, the gap year is useful or the, the you know, just trusting that your hard work will, will catch up with the people that might be more naturally talented than you. <laughs> <laughs> so much of the things that are in here are, are the stuff that I really wish I had when I was this age mm-hmm. of, you know, in high school, because it is all stuff that I ended up figuring out along the way, <laughs> um, yeah. but it would have been so nice to know up front. So I definitely want to encourage um, young students to pick up this book and give it a read. Um, one area that I imagine is going to be a bit controversial, especially with parents, is the section about, um, you mentioned double majors and trying to mm-hmm. decide whether it, something, the wording was something like, if you need a backup plan, um, if you if you think you need a backup plan, then you do. Exactly. And um, yeah, and uh, I feel really strongly about that because uh, in my role at these different schools for admissions, um, I see too often that people come at the backup plan from a, um, a, a place of fear. Mm-hmm. And instead of coming at it from a place of um, goals and enrichment, you know, I can um, be a better singer if I am fluent in French or I want to actually be a doctor, and so I'm going to, you know, really sweat through my undergrad taking courses that will get me into pre-med, which people do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the reason to do um, more than one degree or more than one major is because it plays into the outcome you want and not because you think you're going to be standing on the street corner with your case in front of you, hoping someone will toss in a quarter. And that's what a lot of parents fear. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's not unusual, but, um, you know, the world is always changing. There are lawyers who thought they'd, you know, be set for life and the world changed and they weren't getting jobs. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and that's a profession you think, well, there will, there will always be lawyers. Um, but the world changes. And so if you if this is your passion and you want to follow it and you want to add to it with a different non-musical dimension, then you should. Or even just a second major where you're like performance and education or something like that. It's got to be part of a plan. And we don't talk to the students enough about strategy. It's all about getting in. But but I keep saying it's about getting out, too. Yeah. What are you going to do when you get out, yeah. not like it's a prison or anything, but you know, uh, if, if all the emphasis is on getting in, um, by that time you, you you collapse from exhaustion and, and wherever you got in doesn't matter because you're incapable of, of taking something from it because you just wore yourself out. So that focus on the long-term goal helps decide if um, double majoring or doing a double degree fits in with your plans in a way that um, gives you the career you want. Well, this is kind of a funny story. It totally reminds me of though, um, when my wife and I were first dating, her and her friends would always go to a karaoke bar and I'm not a singer, but I wanted to go there and not just kind of sit and have a beer. I wanted to kind of blend in and also go up and sing karaoke. And I remember I was reading a blog post, like how can you get better at karaoke? (laughs) You know? And, uh, one of the things it said, I think it was the first item was if you're really so uncomfortable to sing, 
then maybe it's just not for you. Like, that's okay. There's many other yeah. people who will. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. <laughs> kind of gave me that push. But but the same thing for people going into university is like, if you really are interested in engineering and music and you absolutely think that you want to combine those someday, then do them both. But if you're worried that you can't hack it at music and you might need engineering, why not just do engineering now and save yourself all the trouble? Right? Is that kind of your idea? Yeah. Yeah. And, and think what a rich life you can have. You, you, yeah. you, you're an engineer by day and at night you play in, in your jazz band. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's great. Um, and, and it's, there's no, there's no joy in shaming people because they, um, you know, want to have a different balance, um, than, than someone else, you know? Well, I think one reason I like it so much is because it really legitimizes the music field more. I mean, there's so many people that, that I know anyways, who did music almost just because they really couldn't think of anything else that inspired something in them. And then they graduated and immediately left the field. Um, mm -hmm. and it's just amazing to me that they would, they would have spent four or even five or seven, 10 years of their life doing mm -hmm. degrees and then going and doing a job that they would have been better suited with mm -hmm. another degree entirely. But, mm -hmm. but that being said, there is, as mentioned in the book, there is serious value to having the discipline to complete any degree. So, um, mm -hmm. I think that if you're worried down the road that you won't be able to find work, um, as a musician, I think it's still beneficial to do the music degree and then see where the jobs lead you from there, you know? Well, and, and I, I find too that I think if you're, if you're going in with just the mindset that, you know, it's, it's kind of performance or the highway, you know, it's, it, I feel like that's really narrowing your path. And I, I think that mm -hmm. the musician of today's world is a lot different. Um, you know, even if you look at the, even, I mean, you know, there's the, there's the top orchestras, which you can make a living, a great living, obviously playing with and playing for, but then, you know, it's like um, if, if you're freelance, we, you know, we all do very a very a large variety of things. Most people teach and play and some people, you know, they have other other side projects that they do or side careers that they do. And um, and, I, and they're all related and they all make they're great. And so I, I just think is, as long as you're creative and you're willing to look at all the options, not just, you know, one narrow, tiny path within music, I think you can actually um, have a great career and make, do a lot of fun things with it. And I, I was the kid that was the double made, double, had a double degraded math and music. And so for the parents um, listening, and I've sent a lot of students in, I have a student, I have many students that have done a double degree since, and I don't recommend it unless it's like what, what Kathy's saying, where you kind of have an idea of how you want to combine the two um, down the line or. Or, or you have a real passion for both. Um, and, and I'll just say that when I had to go to math classes and, you know, do high end calculus that you're, that you're, you're, you know, you're looking at your music friends who are practicing all day long and it just looks way more fun <laughs> for the <laughs> most part, so, you know, yeah. it, it, it can go both directions, but it, it's a real, um, daunting to, to just jump in if you don't kind of know what you're expecting and it can be really overwhelming in a very long, long career. If you're just doing a second degree as a backup. Yeah. And there's another side to that, too, which is the person who is successful and gets a really terrific performance job um, early on. And then they look around and they're like, well, is this it? And mm -hmm. they've never thought about how to keep enriching themselves. Um, you know, in my playing days, I, I usually did a recital a year. Um, whether it was a chamber music recital or a solo recital, and I'd get together friends um one of my friends said, look around your orchestra, pick the best musician and then say, let's play together. And, you know, mm -hmm. to keep growing and to keep, um, 
your interests, even even if maybe your orchestra job is great and then you um, go home and uh, embroider, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you have to have given some thought to that. And, um, you know, if you're uh, so focused on getting the job that you don't think about the, the care and feeding of your own humanity, then it, no matter what career you're in, there's uh, a high likelihood of burnout and you end up becoming bitter because you made it to where you wanted to be. And it wasn't feeding you. And that's maybe because you weren't conscious about needing something to keep your humanity going. Absolutely. So I wanted to touch on one other thing in here, um, which was of great interest to me, and that is the audition itself. And uh, you guys talk a lot about how to pick the right schools and uh, and prepare for the audition. But then there's also a really great section in here on how to actually do the audition, which includes tips which aren't normally shared, like um, how to dress and even how to eat and <laughs> sleep beforehand and, and really focus. <laughs> and that stuff is all super valuable. But I, I did like the section too on practicing an ad adversity training. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if that was something you could go into a little bit more because it's one of the hardest things to really practice. Like how do you practice so that someone's cell phone goes off or, or <laughs> you know, make it difficult for yourself, right? Yeah, well, the idea before an audition is to do a bunch of mock auditions to make them as realistic as possible. Mm -hmm. And hopefully one of the last things they do is mock under adverse conditions where they, where they have things that realistically do happen in auditions, like cell phones ringing or people chattering or whispering, dropping things. And, and rather than have it surprise them and get distracted by it in an audition, as part of the preparation, they do a mock audition where they do have cell phones ringing and, and other things, so they get used to it then and figure out their own individual solution to focusing so they don't lose their focus on distraction, and they train for that, and that's one of the things they'll do, hopefully, in audition when things do go wrong because things happen in live situations and music that they respond well. Another great point was how to manage your time mentally um, between pieces when, for example, people are just writing stuff down on paper, waiting to tell you what to do next. Um, that can seem like an eternity. It can be terrifying. And it's something that many people don't think about or prepare for at all. So, or curveballs like, ah, oh, you know what? We were going to listen to the Schumann, but let's go ahead and skip to the orchestral excerpts or something like that. You know, um, how do you deal with these sort of in the moment problems? That's why it's so important that they have a routine, a pre-planned routine that they go through each time, regardless of the external situation changing or getting thrown a curveball. And one of the parts of that is that they center between excerpts. They center, and rather than analyzing what they did on the first excerpt or criticizing or giving themselves a mini instruction, they get centered, focused on the next piece they're going to play, hear it correctly in their head, and then play it. And that, that's the routine they need to develop through these mock auditions and the adverse mock when things are going wrong. The thing that they stick with is their routine. You know, the best piece of advice, I think, in this book, and this might just be because it's something that I most wish I had read before 10 years ago or so, was to not think about the cost of the institution before you're accepted. Because if you look mm -hmm. online and you see that tuition is $50,000 a semester, um, mm -hmm. you might get turned off from applying to that school, but you might not realize that there's actually funding available that would help negate that or greatly reduce it. And this actually personally affected me because when I was looking for places to go, I'm in Canada, so it's much cheaper up here. I really wanted to go to the Manhattan School to get graduate work done. 
but it was like $75,000 a year. And I was just like, there's no way I can even think to apply. And no one had really explained this to me. So how important is this for students to, to sort of, even though it's hard to not look at the price tag up front and only think about it when scholarships and financial aid starts coming around? Well, you know, I, I oversee uh, financial aid as well as admissions at Juilliard. And um, it's, uh, it, it's incredibly important that students don't self-select out of a school because of the cost. And, and that cannot be emphasized enough because what students don't always realize is there are actual ethical and legal considerations tied into financial aid. So ethically, I cannot offer you money if you're not an applicant. I simply can't. Mm. Um, the school has to have a designated person who kind of signs off on financial aid. So another trap is you meet a teacher and the teacher really likes your playing and says, I want you to work with me. I'll get you some money. And you think that means A, you're admitted and B, you're, you have a scholarship. And that's also not the case because ethically there has to be um, you know, uh, a confirmation coming from the official admissions officer and the official financial aid officer. But there are also legal ramifications. So in the U.S., any school that's getting federal funding um, has certain obligations. So we have to have something that's called the cost of attendance. So you think, oh, tuition might be $50,000. And then I get a full ride, which means full tuition, but it leaves out the part about the $15,000 in room and board and living expenses. Mm-hmm. So cost of attendance is, is, a, is a real thing that a school has to come up with. So it's your tuition and your fees and your books and your room and your board. And for people who live off campus, we have to have some grounding for uh, estimating what that should be. On average, a student will spend X at our school, you know, living living off campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's something that the U.S. government does called College Navigator, which we also mention in the book. And um, we're very careful to say that students need to look at websites that are .gov, .gov, um, not .com, because all of this information that's tied to federal funding and um, federal the, the rules that apply to federal funding um, will be accurate on .gov sites. And so you go there and you see there's something called College Navigator and you can look up schools and colleges that get federal funding have to report this information to the government, which then um, puts it together in different formats and and leaves it there for you to see. Um, We also have to have a net price calculator on our website. These are approximation tools. um, So even then it's not always going to be helpful, but the bottom line with music is that Many schools also have um, merit scholarships and they have their own philosophies for awarding that. Um, But that plays into it as well. So like a Canadian coming to the U.S. cannot get federal money from the U.S. government Mm -hmm. because the the federal government helps American citizens. But a Canadian can get funding from the school. And so a Canadian who says "Uh, this is uh, too much money, you know, um, is kind of missing the point that there might be other funding available. So what you're saying then is that even for international students in the States, there's, there's types of funding which people can take advantage of? There, there can be, yeah. And that will vary from school to school, um, you know, um, but 
but there's nothing stopping a school from giving their own money to someone who's not a U.S. citizen. What what the school cannot do is give federal money mm-hmm. to someone who's not a U.S. citizen. So that that's that's a, a big difference. And and again, um, it may not you know it may not seem like it's going to be enough, but you really don't know until you get to the end of the process when you've applied, you've auditioned, you've been offered admission, and then you see what the funding is and and what's um, what's remaining for you to cover from your own resources. So for this book, I just it comes to mind that you know there's a lot of stuff in here that I wish I had read when I was younger. Um, but mm-hmm. did that did the book come from that sort of place for for you, or was it more just a tool that you realized your students would need? Um, well, we so so the three of us were doing um, college prep talks together. So mm-hmm. you know, we each coming from our own angles, um, and kind of what happened was that we realized that. Um, uh, you know, that, that this could be useful for a larger audience. And so that's that's why we uh, started, Don, it was Don's suggestion, actually, that we start a book together. And I think for Kathy and myself, um, you know, looking back at, at auditioning for schools, and particularly both of us had parents who weren't musicians, um, you know, it was what what did, what did would they have liked to have known? What would we have liked to have known? And so that's that was the premise of, I think, the whole thing was kind of always looking at that perspective. Yeah. <laughs> And, and since we um, since we worked on the book, um, it, you know, as much uh, travel as I do and talking to different folks um, and and everyone has the same questions, you know, so it's like we're saying this all the time because this is basic information such as what kinds of degrees are there? What does it mean to get a BA instead of a BM? And it's such basic information. It's like, let's just put it somewhere where everyone can find it Yeah. because it just makes your life so much simpler to have that information in front of you. Well, it was surprising, especially that kind of information. It had never been laid out that clearly before, you know, in, in a couple of pages, mm-hmm. it's like, any person could totally understand the difference between a BA, a Bachelor of Music, you know, what the difference between multiple majors and et cetera is. I mean, it's like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> so it's really We're glad. Yeah, it's really great that way. So what has the overall <laughs> reception for the book been? I mean, is it into the hands of, of students all over the world now or is it mostly in the States or how people responded to it? Um, I think it's gotten a really great reception and everyone that's, that's read it and talked to us, um, you know, said some really nice things about it. Um, right now it's, it's available through our website, um, which is collegeprepformusicians.com. And then you can also find it on Amazon and it's available on Amazon. And I, I think every country, I mean, it's, it's just in English. Um, but I had friends in Australia that have already bought it from the Australian Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. Um, but yeah, it's, it's gotten some great, great reviews, um, from, heads of college prep programs to, um, to students. Um, my favorite is when a student of mine sends their parent, a picture of their parent reading it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that that's, I've gotten several of those from different parents. Um, and so, and, and a lot of, uh, I think, uh, professional colleagues as well, professional teachers at universities are recommending it to students, um, you know, and, and we're also in the window of the Juilliard bookstore right now. So I think oh, that's kind of very cool. <laughs> yeah. The bookstore is very uh, pleased with it. Don has several books out that are in the Juilliard store and they said they sell constantly, steadily. And so now we've just added to that. Um, and I was um, just at a conference this weekend and uh, showed the book to a colleague. And he said, you know, when I look at this book, I see equity. 
And I thought that was a huge compliment because um, this information should be available to everyone. And it's uh, so much easier if you already know people who are in the business, you know, if your parents are musicians, it's just so much easier. And yet anyone can be talented and want this profession from, you know, any walk of life, any geographic region around the world. And so it's like, here's this information. This is almost a gift to you so that you can make your way through this um, profession and the training involved um, with the same information everyone else has. Given the digital nature of the upcoming generations, um, is there an ebook or an audiobook planned as well? There's definitely an ebook. It's actually already available. Oh, is it? Um, oh, great. Yeah, yeah, it's on it's on our website, and it's also um, available uh, through Kindle and um, iBooks, and uh, I can't uh, Nook is that Kindle? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know all those <laughs> platforms, but it, it actually is on I think every available platform. So, so I didn't see that on Amazon, so I'll have to have a look and. Mm-hmm. Check that out. But that's great because I know a lot of people like to read on their iPads or whatever these days. And uh, some people have gone totally to their music that way, too. So. Um, so and one other question I had about the future of this book or its legacy, I guess, is there a second book plan for what college students should do after they graduate? You said at the beginning this was about sort of an escape plan as much as it was about getting in. Um, so is there a second sort of addition to this plan that might assist with graduation and life in the real world? Um, I mean, I think uh, in terms of all three of us, we hadn't necessarily discussed that particular version. However, I mean, we will be giving updated versions of it. I would, I would say probably at least every couple of years because the informa- some information will will shift, mm-hmm. and so we will shift as it shifts. Um, and so you never know; we might throw a few more chapters in there, or <laughs> or, or the sequel um, as we as we kind of adjust that one. Um, yeah, I guess I meant more of like a sequel, you know, um, book two for, you know, after you graduate or even book two, like for while you're in college, kind of, you know, I see a series coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great thought. Um, yeah, definitely we'll have thought. to see, uh, we'll have to see how things unfold. And and I would say too, if people get really into this, to the, uh, to the, the middle chapters that you were talking about, about the, you know, the, how, how auditions work and whatnot. Don, Don does have, as what Kathy was referring to that are in the Juilliard store, he has um, a book called uh, performance success, which in some ways would be a real world kind of application because it, it applies more to uh, professional auditions and mm-hmm. the professionals. And then also fight your fear and win, which I would say fits in that same category. And those are available through winningonstage.com, which is my website for performing artists to perform under pressure the best of their ability, striving for excellence. So that's where those books are, plus other materials like like the centering course. Before we wrap up here, I wanted to go around and just ask each of you your one biggest tip, the number one thing that you think is of the most value in this book for students? All right. I, I think my biggest tip for students is in the actual application process. So there's there's a, a section that uh, of tier schools, which we kind of touched on earlier, um, which it, it, my lucky number is seven, um, which the student should apply to, I feel like, at least seven schools. I, I don't recommend less than seven. I don't recommend really more than seven because the, over the about 12 weeks span that all the auditions happen. You have to travel to all these schools to take a live audition and more than seven can actually get to be very exhausting and very um, time consuming and very expensive. And so I just really recommend uh, understanding where you're applying. If, if you really have a great shot of getting into it, obviously having some, some what college counselors call the reach schools on your list and also having some, some schools that are guarantees and some 
a school or two that, you know, or is, is like a real shoe in. So you'll, you'll get some scholarship. Um, but that would be my biggest tip is to don't overpopulate your, your, your number of schools that you apply to, as well as, um, just really make sure that you've got a thought over process of, of where you're playing is use your private lesson instructor hopefully to help you gauge that and that that would be my number one biggest tip for students that's such good advice you know i think too too many people apply to too many or too few schools and seven sounds like a great number so the thing i would say is that uh for high school musicians that the audition for the schools might be the most stressful thing in their lives Mm. and if they're not used to auditioning they need to hone their skills the difference even good students the difference between getting to harvard or princeton or yale and Oberlin or Juilliard is they have to take an audition. Yeah. And it, mm-hmm. and it depends upon that. No matter how good their grades are, if they don't pass the audition, they don't go to Oberlin or Juilliard. So they need to put this on their curriculum, what they really need to learn how to do to get into the school of their dreams. Absolutely. And my favorite thing to say is that uh, you have zero chance of getting in if you don't try. Mm. And students will say, how many openings are there? And I'm like, how many people are you? You're one person. You need one opening. If there's one opening, why should that opening not be yours? And it's like, well, it's only one opening. It's like, well, you know, in the real world, there might only be one opening. And it's even more likely that there's only one opening. So don't wait for there to be 20 piano openings before you um, apply to a school. It's like if there's one opening, make that one yours. Well, there's something to be said, too, for the experience of doing various auditions. Um, another thing in the book is you talk about how even great players in big orchestras, it's almost certain that they have way more failed auditions under their belt than, than winning ones. And if you mm-hmm. don't get those out of the way, sometimes you're not going to get to the, the gig that you want or the, the bigger gig or the, mm-hmm. the, the school or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. super important advice. I mean, if you take the seven auditions you're thinking of taking and and you only get in at three schools, I mean... What would it have been if you only took three auditions? You know, you might not have gotten in anywhere. Plus the experience of doing those auditions and the mock auditions leading up to them. Yeah. That's an incredibly valuable experience that they probably don't have a lot of. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Don always talks about the mock auditions and, and there's a a famous horn teacher in the U S I think he requires, uh, who has a real high track record of getting students into professional orchestras. And so, um, from college. And he, I think he goes for about 40 mock auditions per every professional audition you take. And so wow. obviously for high school students, that's a, that's a little extreme. Um, but you know, if, if you're doing your mocks, like Don's suggesting, and you take, you take your seven auditions, hopefully by that point, you're feeling really good for all of them. Yeah. It's like a, a, a colleague of mine, uh, who said, he, he got to the point where he was winning about every fifth audition. So then he'd figure out what audition he wanted to take. And then he'd make sure he did four auditions in front of that. So he could win the fifth, you know? So it's like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you all for coming on the, the show today. Um, I think this is such a valuable book and I would definitely recommend that anyone, um, not only in high school, but those who are currently in college and you know what, even, even afterwards, I think you'll find some really valuable gems in here about what, how to audition and how to focus your mind while practicing. And, uh, especially if you're American, there's a really great appendix in here too. with just tons of information about different schools and, uh, audition formats and things like that. So Thank you all for coming on the show today, and uh, I wish you well with this book launch and uh, with all your future endeavors. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thanks Thanks so much.
What a valuable conversation today and what a valuable book. If you'd like to read the book, College Prep for Musicians, you can pick up your copy at the show notes for today's episode at clarinet.com. Of course, this episode was not focused entirely on the clarinet. And if you do know any other high school students or college students or teachers, guidance counselors, parents, etc., who might get value from both the book and today's episode, I'd love it if you would share both with them. I think that this is one of those episodes where, while we do like to keep, you know, our secrets to ourselves as clarinet players, uh, the, you know, the nuggets of information found here on the podcast from these great guests. It is also nice to share the knowledge around. So I would love it if you would take a moment and share this episode and the book with anybody who you think might find it valuable. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new Vocalese mouthpiece, Complex Resonance at a Reasonable Price. Get yours at www.bakunmusical.com and save 10% on any accessory purchase with code Clarinet at checkout. The show is also brought to you by Chamber Music Northwest. With over $20,000 in prizes and world-class guests, artists, and vendors, their upcoming clarinet celebration and competition is an event that you don't want to miss. Learn more at cmnw.org. Don't forget to check out D'Addario's line of Reserve, Reserve Classic, and new Reserve Evolution reads. You can head to your local music store or to clarinet.com reads to buy a box right now. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry on the Clarinet Podcast.